Are you looking for the best tips and tricks to run a successful dental practice? You're in the right place. Welcome to Bulletproof Dental Practice, interviewing some of today's most successful dentists with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning back in to part two of Dr. Chris Ramsey's talk. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bolden, with the Bulletproof Dental Practice podcast. And we've had the pleasure of uh, discussing Chris's master lecture series. And that and master is actually an acronym for his program that he has trademarked, which is pretty cool. It's about the decision-making process, the art of persuasion, body language, you know, nonverbal communication. And so we've already gone over in part one the M, which is mindset, the A, which is addressing choice, the S, which is storytelling, and now we're continuing on with the T, which is training the eye, E, expectation, and R, recognizing the persuasion. Hope you're getting a lot of value from this, and um, we'll see you soon. But hey, you, Peter, you'd ask me, you know, you'd ask me to touch on some of these things that men and women do in the world of body language. So I'll tell you right now that because that goes to the T, which is the training the eye. Um, when we look at um, men and women, they do different things. And I'm going to explain why. The first thing everyone I think listening to this needs to know is women are innately better at body language cues than men right off the bat with no training. And when I ask groups, do you know, people know why? A lot, most people don't guess. Uh, they, and the reason is, is because um, women bear children. And so this evolutionary process of women giving birth to kids, what happens is you take a five month old, a six month old, you know, one that really doesn't talk. Here you have a human that doesn't talk, but if it gestures or cries a certain way, a mother will instinctively <laughs> go, uh, bless you, they'll instinctively go hungry, tired, poopy diaper. They know instantly what's going on. Guys go, oh my God, I don't know what's going on here. I don't even know if this thing's mine, you know? So they, <laughs> so they don't know what's happening. So women innately are better because they bore children. So right off the bat, I got to tell you, and this is not the Chris Ramsey opinion, by the way. This is a study at Harvard, 87% compared to 42%. Men, uh, women are better at it than men, so twice as good as men. And that's the women's with, intuition too, probably where that came yeah, from, right? Women's intuition, exactly right. So you know what? Women's intuition with guys, we have like a a hunch or like a gut feeling at best. You know, so it's not really much to go off. In fact, there's a great study. I'll tell you this. Did you know that strangers read each other at an? They did this study in 2011, where strangers will read each other at an accuracy of 20 percent. Now, I think it's important for offices to know that. That means your front desk crew, let's say you have one, two, three girls at the front. Those girls have been together for a while. They're friends. Maybe they hang out after work. They get really cozy, like a little niche of girls, and they're comfy like they are at their own home. That's hard for a stranger to walk in to three or four girls at the front who they really don't know, and they don't want to be kind of judged, but we do it. It's human nature, you know, prejudge people. But instantly, what happens if your desk looks at somebody they're only going to be right about how that person is going to react or respond to something one out of every five times. So you can't guess. You cannot think, I know how this person is going to react. And let me tell you my favorite quote. I, I want to make sure I'm glad I, I'm glad I got to this because I wanted to make sure I tell you my very favorite quote. It's from a book called Mindset. And you, um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to read it specifically because I think it's important for you guys to – I'll, eventually I'll find it, I'm sure. Mindset makes a very, very valid point because it's a great book. And it says, the, the, I can't imagine a more better ability than understanding other people. That's the Cliff Notes version of it. And that's so true because what happens if you don't take the time to understand other people, how they think and how they, um, and how they respond to things, you will only default to what you know, which is yourself. So you'll say they don't act like me. They don't talk like me. They don't walk like me. So they must be wrong. 
And that is a completely terrible way to approach a situation. So to think that they don't act like you or talk like you or walk like you, th- absolutely they're not going to. And you can't try to guess because, again, based on the study in 2011, you're only going to be right 20% of the time. You're going to be wrong most of the time. That's why this subject matter is so near and dear to my heart because I'm trying to drive home the message. You've got to take the time to understand other people. And that's that's a very important thing. So let's hit on the body language. So right off the bat, people do things called pacifying behaviors. And one of those things is the things that their limbic part of their brain control that they don't know that they do. So when we get into a situation where we're uncomfortable, here's the top three things men will do. And I'll say them out loud so in case someone's driving and listening and they don't get to see the video. They're going to touch their face in the goatee area, men, like this. They're going to touch the back of their neck here with like with somebody who almost has like a neck cramp. Or they're going to touch the top of their forehead like if they're itching their forehead. Why is that? Because if you touch these spaces, they're all very sensitive. If men touch these areas, it's sensitive areas which release endorphins, which help calm you down. So your limbic brain says, ooh, something's stressing me out. So touch there. So what happens? You hand someone a, a treatment plan. And the first thing they do, and it's quick. A guy may look down at it, and instantly he touches his goatee area and goes, okay, like that. And quick, it just happened. It was his brain's way of saying, I'm a little uncomfortable. Let's start calming ourselves down here. And what do we, because right now, if I go like this, I can do it on purpose. There's a part of my neck. Yep, I just did it. I scratch the back of my neck. I get goosebumps on my arm. I can't control that. There's parts of my neck that if I scratch, it instantly causes me to get goosebumps. That's just a part of my brain that controls that. So I'm looking for these things. With women, they will um, pull, you know, they'll, they'll uh, play with their hair, like, like you see me here, like tugging on their hair around their ear in this area. Or they'll touch the nape of their neck. Now, if there's jewelry here, you'll often see women play with their jewelry. So why is that? This is a very sensitive area for women, so they'll, they'll often touch this area lightly. You may see them kind of doing this with their hand, kind of scratching it over their – or starting to play with their jewelry. But why do women pull on their hair? We're guys. We don't have long hair. So they'll tug on their hair or play with their ear in this area. That goes back to being a baby, right? You guys have had children. You calm them down. You're holding them. You brush your fingers through their hair. You touch their side of their ear like this, and you help calm them down. We as adults just learn to do that to ourselves. So that's where these pacifying behaviors come in. And unfortunately, I could take the next two hours to go over tons of body language things, but I'm going to hit some really fun highlights real quickly. So what does it mean if someone's scratching their neck while they're talking to you, while they're doing this? It's a universal sign to say, you know what, I – uh I don't really agree with what you're saying, you know? Um, so someone says, Hey, uh, you coming to my party Friday night? And they got, they scratch their neck and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. They ain't coming to your party. I got there. So, um, that's the first thing. Second, second thing is the most common people want to ask me all the time is the arms crossed. So the arms crossed thing is a hugely popular thing. Why, you know, Oh, I know body language. It means their arms are crossed. They're nervous. No, you don't want to just take one thing and say, Oh my gosh, they're nervous because arms crossed could mean a million things. We're from Florida. So if you meet me up in Chicago at the Chicago Midwinter and my arms are crossed, I'm probably just freezing to death. You know what I mean? So you can't say I'm nervous because my arms are crossed. What I want you to start looking for is when someone's hands are crossed, it can be crossed for a million reasons. But look at their hand position. In the video, you'll see my hand. There's a difference between having your hands rest here or having your fists clenched in in your arms like this. Fists clenched, that's a whole other thing. Ah. That is a form of hostility or defensiveness. And what's funny about that. There are the three top places you will see that happen. Doctors, dentists, and first-time travelers. So we're right there. Whether you like it or not, we're part of the list. So when you see people and their hands are clenched and they're out, yeah, they're probably a little hostile and defensive, because. but look for the hands, not just the arm position. Another funny thing is, you remember the um, 
hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil when we were growing up with the monkeys, the monkey, right? Yeah. yeah, the monkeys. So those are fun things because let's talk about the first thing right off the bat, the speak no evil. The limbic part of your brain says, okay, you're talking too much. You're starting to lie. <laughs> this is not going well. So put your hand over your mouth. So you'll start to see people start touching their mouth a lot when you, they're talking to you, you know, now it may not be a full on lie, but they're now, you know, you ask a real estate agent, Hey, how much property you sell last year? Nah, probably 50 million, give or take. Now I don't know if you maybe sold 20, but it probably ain't 50, you know? So Phil, famous, famous video, Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. But if you look at him, touch his face, he touches his face constantly in that video. You know, he's constantly, Look at interviews with Lance Armstrong. The guy was constantly, his hands are to his face a lot during those interviews. So that's the speak no evil right off the bat. Your brain is saying, please, please stop talking. So that's the first thing. So you had speak no evil. You had see no evil, which was hands over the eyes. So where do we start to see that? Simple, simple eye rubs. Now, you can't jump to one thing and say, oh, my God, just rubbed his eye. The guy's got to be a liar. You don't want to go that far. But you start to look for things. You look for things in that are congruent within context. And so you start to look for these things and all of a sudden now someone starts talking to you and you start seeing them rub their eye. Same thing when a guy, when a woman goes, Hey honey, how was your boy's trip in Vegas? He goes, Oh my God, it was, it was okay. You know, it was, uh, you know, he's for the people not watching, I'm rubbing my eye. You go, yeah, it was okay. It was, uh, you know, we just spent some time in the library and uh, went to bed early, you know? So the eye rub is another way your brain is basically saying, I'm having a hard time looking at you while I'm talking to you. So we start to see people rub their eye a lot. Now, that is coupled with one of the ones that's not hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, which is the nose touch. Now, nose touch is great because this has been done under functional MRI. When we're not honest, we know that we have an increased blood flow and body temperature goes up. That's where you get the expression, they're getting hot under the collar. People are not being honest or lying a lot. They start to sweat a lot. And so um, you'll see people saying, God, I'm getting hot. I got to loosen my tie. Those are things I look for where I'm like, hmm, something's going on here. But when body temperature goes up, blood flow increases. There's an area around the periphery of the face where the blood flow increases. But another place that they found under functional MRI, blood flow increases to the nose. And you get a slight skin expansion. It's actually called the Pinocchio effect. So you get a catecholamine release, expansion here. And because the skin expands, you see people start to itch their nose a lot. So you'll see this sometimes where they're talking to you. Where do you get this? Dentists will say, hey, who was your dentist before me? And when the patient doesn't want to tell you, which is common, they'll say, um, oh gosh, I, uh, I don't remember. I, I, I have a hard time remember. And they start with this whole, they're touching their nose, they're rubbing their eye. And instantly it's like, okay, this is a bad sign. So the Pinocchio effect, itching in the nose, touching the eye, eye rub. And then the last one, hear no evil, speak no, um, hear no evil, speak no evil is, um, ooh, sorry. Am I talking too fast for you guys? Oh, man, I'll let it go. I'm loving it, man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I got in. Okay. So the um, the last one is um is the is this is the hear no evil one where basically if you start seeing people a lot of times they'll start they'll start touching their ears a lot. Now the touching of the ear really is really based on anxiety. Again, this goes back to the same thing. When you were a baby, your parents would rub their fingers through your hair or your around your ears, and we start doing that to ourselves. You'll see people they'll cross their arms and they'll start tugging on their earlobes and they'll start touching their ear. It's an anxiety driven thing that says, hey, this person may be uncomfortable. Everything I've told you guys right now, just on those little things, how do I use those? I just look for those visual cues because when I mention money or sequence of treatment, we're simply 
you're going to lose your tooth. When I see pacifying behaviors, it allows me to simply move the conversation in a way to keep it positive. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, Mr. Jones, I got to get you over to Dr. X to get your tooth out. And instantly the guy goes, okay, I haven't said anything about money. I haven't talked about anything. All of a sudden I know this guy may be actually scared of the, he's probably thinking, oh my God, I don't want to get my tooth extracted. So I just go, so before I continue, Mr. Jones, let me, um, let me explain to you why I'm going to send you over to Dr. X because I could send you anywhere to get a tooth extracted. Hell, I could do it. But the truth of the matter is I need the experience to go well for a multitude of reasons. I still want you to be able to go to the movies on Friday night as opposed to me just sending you to a clinic and you being black and blue for a week. All I've done now is change the conversation to make it seem like it's so much more about him because I saw a passing by behavior that said, hey, this guy may be nervous about the extraction. And this is hard over a podcast, but that's what I try to teach live to to, uh, audiences. You know, the team members, I love this one. For team members, I always tell team members, your body knows, your brain knows this. From your reproductive organs to the top, bottom of your neck, this is where your entire life exists. Your your brain knows that. I need my reproductive organs and I need this area, my chest and abdomen, because all my internal organs are housed there. So your brain does everything it can. Right when you hear a loud bang, what do people do? They curl up. Your body knows, hey, protect this area. So when you walk up, when you're walking up, you see two people at a party. Let's say it's this weekend. You see a party going on. You see your two friends talking. You start to walk up. If someone turns to you and turns their entire torso to you, that's their brain way of saying, I'm inviting you into this conversation. I'm I'm opening myself up to you to invite you into this two-way conversation. But we've all seen this. Someone, you walk up to somebody and they just kind of turn over and look at you and go, hey, how's it going? But they don't open their torso to you. You don't, they may be talking about something private. That's your cue to say, Hey, let's catch up later, you know, and walk away because they may have not even known that they did it, but it's your visual cue to say they didn't open their torso to me. They didn't turn to me. So something tells me they might not want to talk to me right now. These are amazing things for teams to learn. Craig could do this with his team right now. He could have a meeting tomorrow and Craig get his whole team together and say, when I'm talking to a patient, if you walk up and I turn my chest to you, if I turn to you. I'm inviting you in. But if you walk up and I look over and go, is there something you need? That should be a great visual cue for all of his employees to go, no, Dr. Spodak, I'll get back to you in a second. That's a quick visual cue to say, you don't know what you're walking into. Imagine, Craig, you're talking to a patient you've known a long time who just lost a family member. And of course, your assistant comes running down. She wants you to sign the lab slip. That is not important right now. But you can give her a nice visual cue to say, team, if I turn to you, that's your invited into the conversation. If I don't turn to you, don't interrupt me. It's a great way. And what a nice flow that gets into to say, because you don't want to have to stop and say, can I talk to you in a minute? Because it's embarrassing and everything else. So when I do these long programs, I try to teach people the body language, not only that they can look for, but that they can bring into their office and start using them as cues to communicate with other team members and the dentists that are in their office. Fun stuff. Have I, have I over-talked to you guys yet? No, man. It's like <laughs> taking it all. It's like the fire hose analogy, right? Like just yeah. one, Take a little sip. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it goes on and on, but I love you guys, so I'm trying to make sure even in a short period of time, I, I try to give you a ton. When I go over the body language, I cover everything. I cover hand position when someone shakes their hand. You know when you shake someone's hand, it can be neutral. If the palm is down, that's a dominant handshake, right? We've all had guys, hey, what's up, man? They come in with their palm down, a kind of big overhand handshake. That's dominant. Palm up, less aggressive. That's what we need to know about body language. Everything without the palms up, your preacher, your rabbis, it's very inviting, Everything palm down is very authoritative. How do you train a dog? Uh, certain people in history, you know, have all been palm down. 
You know, so when we look at this, there's all these cues that we want to look at. Unfortunately, I can't do it now in a podcast, but I would show you things just in a chair, how people wrap their legs around a chair when you're talking to them. This is why I think it's important where you do your checkouts or where you do your consults. If I do a consult, I want to see your entire body. What I want people to take home from this podcast is this. Do not rely on people's faces to tell you the truth. You've been lying with your face since you were a kid. You go to grandma's house, your parents said, smile and tell grandma how much you love her. You're like, okay. You know, you've been training yourself to lie with your face. So when you get to an adult, you can't rely on somebody's face. You can't really choose. That's, that's Hollywood. You can't really look at somebody and go, oh, they're lying. You want to do uh, classes with like Paul Ekman. He does micro expressions where you look for small twitches. You're looking for dilation in the pupils. I'm not looking for a CIA black ops site. I just want you to say yes to a crown, you know, so it's not, so you know. Do you have, so these are ticks or tells or kind of like, you know, that can give you warning signs when you're less presenting treatment or discussing treatment and it makes you pump the brakes as a clinician. Yeah. Are there affirming signs that you can say, okay, keep going, keep going because we're not struggling here. And I think, um, I think so many dentists will just like, like there, people will say they've already agreed to treatment and now we just keep like vomiting, regurgitating dentistry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they're ready to yeah. go. They didn't, they didn't have any problem. Right. And now, right. now all you can do is talk them out of the treatment. That's all you can right. do. Right. Yeah. You got to know, you got to know when to be quiet. Exactly. And that's, and let's be honest guys, that's where we fail the most in dentistry. 100%. We fail in dentistry because we just over talk them to death. And I've seen a lot of people talk people out of it. This is why this is why I'm a big believer in this. If you are currently listening to this podcast and you are a practice who refers out, then you need as a dentist to stop answering all of their questions. Let me give you an example. I refer out to a periodontist who does implant surgery. So the patient says to me, and now listen, everyone listening to this podcast that knows you guys are pretty pretty good dentists, let's be honest. So they pretty much know everything about implant dentistry, so they feel compelled to answer all the questions. So Mrs. Jones says, um, how long, um, you know, how long does that implant take? You answer the question. How much is that? You answer the question. And then she, you know, do they put me to sleep? You answer the question. Do they use bone graft? You answer the question. And what happens is you talk them out of it. So rule of thumb for me is I answer two questions. And most when importantly, she, sorry, but you spent yeah. valuable time that you could have been treating someone else. Yeah. yeah that's a whole nother subject. Dentists not valuing time. That could be a whole podcast. Oh my goodness. That's why I'm a big believer in oral scanners. Scanners are amazing for me. I love scanners. I tear all the whole thing. I, I love it, but that's a whole nother subject. But um, yeah, you're right, because what happens is when Mrs. Jones gets to the third question, I go, Mrs. Jones, these are phenomenal questions. The problem is you're asking the wrong doctor. The key to my success, to be honest with you, it's not a secret, and I love, I have no secrets. Anybody asks, I tell them everything. I'm the most honest and upfront person on the planet. The one thing about me is I will tell you all the time, the key to my success and my conversion rate is really working with great specialists. I get them out of my chair and in. When they're sitting in front of a specialist, people have to know the dynamic changes. And a lot of dentists don't like to hear this. But the specialists, they really are the top of the food chain. You know, if your regular physician says, you go in, you say, I'm having a little problem with my chest. I think there's something going on. And he says, here, breathe for me. He goes, hey, you have a problem with your ticker. You're like, I don't think so. He goes, well, let me send you to the cardiologist. You go to the cardiologist. He takes less time and says, here, breathe for me. He goes, Hey, you got a problem with your ticker. You're like, damn, I got a problem with my ticker. Why? Because the cardiologist told you. My key to success is get them in the chair with the orthodontist. Get them in the chair with the periodontist. And that's it. They're the top of the food chain. Now they answer all the questions and people have a tendency to convert more with the, in front of the specialist than they do with us. 
Because if you answer all their questions, they're not even going to go to the console. They're not going. They're like, nah, I don't want to do that. You know, so. So what are some what are some reaffirming? So you talked about some some giveaways and some rubbing the head and rubbing the neck. Like, what are some positive uh, well, affirming well, the thing is, body of justice? The thing is, no, to be clear, the hair flip. The hair flip. Yeah. Talk, don't don't leave this conversation without the hair flip. I want to know what the real meaning of the woman flipping their hair. You know, like well, anything for me with the women flipping their hair. You know, it used to be a lot of my friends would be like, they would say. I think this girl likes me and she keeps playing with her hair. And I'm like, no, playing with the hair is a more about calming. They're trying, they're calming them, they're <laughs> themselves down. So she's I'm not into your approach. Try this man. Let me play with my hair. Yeah. To be fair though, Peter, the, um, all these pacifying behaviors, they really are not deemed positive or negative. What they're deemed is reactions that your brain is saying, okay, I want to calm down here. I kind of want to get a grip here of what's going on. Maybe it's not because maybe they can afford it. Maybe it's not about that. They're just more thinking, Oh man, is this going to fit into my time frame? Um, I remember my last friend got an implant. It was a little painful. It's not really about the money, but it might be painful. There's so many things swirling in their head. So it, all it does is allows us to see a pacifying behavior, see that it's happened. And then it, for me, that's a fork in the road. Now I have two directions to take that conversation and I'm constantly moving the direction of the conversation down the road, but moving it constantly in which way I take it until I get them in a comfortable environment. So if they, do a pacifying behavior when I'm just talking about treatment. We haven't even talked about money yet. It's not a money thing. It's more of let me walk you through what this really means. You know, you say to somebody, you got to take the tooth out, put an implant in. You're not going to get a crown for four months. Well, we know what that means, but they go, oh, my God, am I walking around without a tooth for four months? I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me – okay, no, no. Let me, let me explain that better. So that's where people get nervous because everyone listening to this podcast right now has a different way of feeling that they – go over treatments more successful. Some people draw pictures. Some people use software. Some people just feel that the tone of their voice works, whatever. The bottom line is I just look for pacifying behaviors to say, ooh, 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 they're getting a little nervous about something. What did I just do or say that they're nervous about? And let me alter that conversation and move it back to neutral. That's all I'm doing there. But you're right. Once they go, yeah, I'm good, stop talking. Yep. Get out. Stop talking. Turn it over to a, a, a qualified team member that you have trained. Let me back up for a second. I tell people all the time, these groups, and somebody listening to this right now may be uncomfortable with this or even say, woof, Ramsey, he's a little brutal. But I mean this in the nicest way. I ask teams all the time, do you know why people come to your office? Like, do you know why people would say, wow, this office is exceptional? I want all of you to be able to answer that question. And right now, if you cannot answer that question, the truth of the matter is it's not your fault. It's the person you work for. Because if their vision is not clear, how do they expect you to be awesome? Yep. It's, in, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to be incredible if the person you work for is not 100 times more incredible. They should be trickling down amazing things where you go, I work for an amazing doctor. This facility is amazing. The service is amazing. And I buy into that. That's what employees do for great corporations. This is why the three of us have been at the same thing. And we stay at the Four Seasons or the Ritz or whatever because it's more than a bed, a shower, and a toilet. It's the moment I walk up, I leave the valet, I check in, I walk up to the front desk, they go, Dr. Ramsey, welcome back. And I'm thinking, I haven't been to this Four Seasons. But they go, no, no, welcome back to the Four Seasons. Would you still like us to bring those two bottles of Perrier to your, your room tonight? Why? Because they have a profile on me. They know I love Perrier. So they, they make a point of keeping track of their clients and doing amazing things for them that you're not going to get elsewhere. So team members need to get on board if they think, well, we just don't have that. This is where we got to get the docs to say, listen, 
you have people that want to be amazing. It's your responsibility to allow them to do that. So anyway, I got off tangent. So where were we? M-A-S-T. And then uh, that was that was kind of going over some body language. The last two were expectation and recognizing persuasion. With Really with expectation, it's, it's a funny animal expectation. I love – that's a part of the lecture. By the time you get to expectation during a day lecture, they've heard me for about three and a half hours. And this gets really fun because expectation really is about starting that section off about – why do things cost what they do? Why is someone willing to give you $1,200, $1,500 for this little piece of porcelain that you may have paid, I don't know, 180 bucks for? You know, I don't know, whatever a lab, your lab bill is. Why are they willing to do that? Is your crown really worth $1,500 when the average American doesn't make 1000 bucks a week, right? So what's it worth? I ask that question all the time. Right now, I look at all of you guys. Is your crown really worth fifteen? your veneer $2,000 or whatever you charge? Is it really worth that? And as I go into that, ask these rhetorical questions, you can see the audiences are like, oh, man, this guy's making me uncomfortable. What I'm really trying to do is have you understand what someone's willing to pay you, what they expect to pay you. It's all psychological. It's all psychological. Why is certain caviar expensive? Why are certain um, scotches expensive? Why is the Mona Lisa so famous? It's all psychological. It's all the stories behind it and what went into it. And as long as you can justify the expectation, the price is really built around one thing. The price is built around, goes back to the first thing I told you, which is a positive experience. This is why if they tell you about these wines and how amazing they are and the history behind these vineyards and they go into all this thing, They can justify $250 for this bottle of wine. They get you excited. You taste it. You buy into it. And you say, I'm willing to pay that. But you're also willing to buy two-buck chuck at Trader Joe's and be just as happy with that as well. So why are we willing to pay for the things we do? And I get into expectation and the psychological element of that. I want to tell you guys a quick story. This will help bring this whole thing home. In uh, the middle of World War II, there was a guy, this guy by the name of James. He had migrated from Europe down to Cuba. He was a diamond broker. And he went to Cuba to manufacture watches for our military. They were going to be – they were waterproof watches that our military would wear during World War II. Well, the war comes to an end, and he's got a huge surplus of watches that now the military doesn't need. But the Japanese, who just lost World War II, is now willing to buy them. They want the watches. So his son Salvador says, I can sell them back to the Japanese, but they don't have any money, but they'll trade me in pearls. And – he does this huge transaction and amasses this huge collection of pearls, and Salvador becomes known as the Pearl King. It's uh, 1973. He's down in the Caribbean, and um, he meets a guy by the name of Jean-Claude who owns all this amazing property. And Jean-Claude takes him out and says, hey, on my property here in the Caribbean, we have these black oysters, and they p- produce these black pearls. I heard you're the Pearl King. Do these black pearls have any value? He says, I don't know. Give me a bunch of them. Let me take them to my purveyors around the world, and let me see what I can find. So the Pearl King, everyone knows this guy is the Pearl King. It's the early 70s. Comes back after a couple months. These black pearls have no value. Nobody wants them. They're like kids' jewelry or whatever. He goes, but before we give up, I do have one idea. Have your divers go down. Get me the best ones they can find. Let's polish them up. I got one more idea. He takes a bag of them, sends them up to his friend in New York, Harry Winston. Harry Winston drills through them, puts together this amazing black pearl necklace, puts it in the window on Fifth Avenue, takes out a one-page, full-page ad in the New York Times, these exotic black pearls from God knows where, blah, blah, blah. And inside of 30 days, 
these things became priceless. Every socialite and celebrity wanted the exotic black pearls from this remote island. What was that? That was actually something known as a trigger effect. The trigger effect is simply just something where it triggers you to all of a sudden say, this thing has value. You know, that's where the expectation in the psychological. Literally for months, nobody wanted these things. All of a sudden on Fifth Avenue at Harry Winston, they're exotic, so everybody wants them. So expectation is a funny thing. As, as you're as a dentist, as a team, start to amass what you believe people are willing to pay for your service, you have to ask the question, what do I truly believe they're getting other than my profi fee is the same as the guy across the street, right? We all heard about these. There's certain practices around the country where they just have these crazy fees and people pay them because those people believe through expectation that psychologically I'm getting something better here that I cannot get anywhere else. So I go into, I can't go into everything obviously, but if anybody wants to read more on the concept of expectation and how they can change their business, I would tell you read anything from Seth Godin, Purple Cow, Poke the Box, um, The Dip, um, uh, The uh, Lynchpin. These are all amazing books to help you as a business ask the question. He has a book, a book called Poke the Box. It's great because that expression comes from where we transition from kids to adults The biggest problem I see with dentists right now is they don't want to try new things because they're afraid I'm going to fail. But children, they don't care. This is why a kid plays a video game. He sits down at this shooting game, gets his remote, and starts to play and goes, blah, 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 dead, ah, blah, 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 dead, blah, blah, dead. And for 13 hours, all he does is die until he passes phase one. And inside of a month, he masters that game. What do we do as an adult? We pick up that same remote, we go, blah, blah, dead, and we slam the remote down and we go, this game sucks. You know, because we don't want to fail anymore, so we don't try anymore. If you're a dentist listening to this right now and you're on the road somewhere, you got to pull over and say, you know what? I'm tired of doing things mediocre. It is time for me to start trying new things and start failing. Show me one athlete in the, who's the best in the world, and I'll show you a guy who failed – or girl – who failed so many times to become the best in the world at what they do. Who cares if you fail? Who cares? Yeah. I don't care. I'm not going to look at Peter and say, oh, Peter tried that stupid thing and he failed. So what? Peter then finally hit on something and it works. You guys hit on this. You guys have a successful podcast. Do you know how many guys I've talked to? There's a guy pimping me right now. He's like, I really want to start a podcast. And he said that to me like five times. And I said, dude, do it and stop talking about it. Do it. And if it fails, it fails. But you two started it. And now look, you got hundreds of people listening. It works. And if it didn't work, what would you have lost other than your ability to say, I'm going to give it a shot? That's what promoted me to do this. I didn't think there was going to be that many people that wanted to hear about body language and all these things like that. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. You know what I mean? Because I love it. I am passionate about it. And now people are like, yeah, I want to hear it. It didn't fail. Thank goodness. But if it would have, I would have gone back to restorative lectures. That's fine. But this is something interesting. You know, when I when I set out to do my practice, it was such a meteoric jump. It was such a massive risk. Um, massive, Greg. Massive, bro. Because you massive. have built Taj Mahal, man. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> four banks said no to me. And the last bank that said no, um, the guy sat down with me afterwards. And it was, we, were, we had the closing table. The day was all set. And I told the, uh, the GC that we're starting on a Wednesday. We're getting financing on Monday or whatever. I sit down at the bank and they tell me, listen, we can't do it. They pull out. They had already told me they were committing. So it was a massive disruption. Oh. So the bank, the guy sits down with me and said, listen, you know, I want to talk to you off the record. You know, I'm your banker, but I'm also going to give you some unsolicited advice. 
you've signed documents that are going to strap you to this project personally. You've signed things that we will hunt, we'll get the money from you. Basically, you can't de declare bankruptcy and escape this debt. And he said, listen, I want to give you this advice to not do it. You're jeopardizing your young family. You're jeopardizing your legacy. You have a great practice. Just don't do it. And I mean, the numbers didn't really make sense, by the way, what I did. <laughs> but the funny thing was, is I had, I had a very clear idea that if I were to fail, I had a failing plan, a contingency plan. And my contingency plan was that I always loved coastal California. And as a dentist, and we're all dentists that are listening to this, we have a skill set that no one can ever take from us. If you're a restaurateur and you leveraged your life on a restaurant and it fails, you're probably not going to be able to own a restaurant again for a long time. Because right. a dentist, you have a skill. You can go anywhere in the world and work for somebody and make really good money. Right. So my contingency plan was if I were to fail completely, which was a real and present thing for me, I was going to move to coastal California find a guy that I could work with and I have a skill. I'm a great dentist. I'll work for anybody. I can make decent money anywhere I go. I could pick right. any spot on the map and work there, work for somebody. And uh, so, so I mitigated the fear of failure because failure is just a seminar. A mistake is just a learning experience. Sometimes uh, seminars are very expensive and sometimes seminars are cheap, but yeah. you know, as long as I like that work, analogy. that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and we've created a culture in my office where we encourage mistakes because mistakes mean you're, you, that you're thinking. If right. you don't make mistakes, you're not thinking. So you know, think of mistakes as seminars, failure yeah, something. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, we've got to get we've got to get past that. We've got to be okay, you know, falling on our face. Rob and I, we're constantly trying things, and a lot of them, you know, they don't work. You know, and and by the way, trying doesn't mean I spent seventy five hundred dollars on a one page ad didn't get anything from it. I mean, so truly putting your heart and soul into something and say I'm going to really attack this project or try to do this. And, you know, if it doesn't pan out, okay, then I'll go back to the drawing board. It's okay. I, I don't mind failing. You know, it's, you know, it's, it, I think it's, I think it's great. Actually, it's bad as I'm getting older, it's weird. I think it's almost weird that I actually enjoy it more. I'm like, oh man, I keep falling on my face. Yeah. So, it's challenging because you get, it is you, challenging. You know, it's crazy. I, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm the same way, man. You almost, yeah. start, you almost start cherry picking things. You're like, hmm, this could blow up yeah. in my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, guys, with expectation too, I, I think it's important. Right now, I'm going to presume, let's say, that someone's going to be listening to this and they've been practicing long enough for them to have the opinion. They would say, well, this is all fine and dandy and, you know, Ramsey's got his thing and Peter's got his thing and Craig's got his thing. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty good at what I do. You know, and, they, and a lot of dentists, they, they hang their hat on, I'm very good at, at, at what I do. If you read enough things, especially from Seth Godin, he'll often tell you, very good is bad. Because the reality is everyone around you is very good. How many dentists do you actually know that go out of business? It's not a lot. I've heard of one or two, but you just don't see it. I tell you tons of restaurants, clothing stores, but a dentist open up and they'll often say, oh, dentists aren't good business people. Really? Then why do I not see many ever go out of business? Right? I've got financial guys saying that all the time. Oh, you guys don't do a lot of business training. I go, you're right. But the reality is they don't go out of business. They pretty much survive. So being very good is bad. Seth often talks about what are you going to do to make yourself remarkable? That's the mentality. I think that's how we started coming full circle. When you wake up to debt tomorrow, if you're going to the office, you need to walk in there, grant your team together and go, okay, listen, we need to not just be very good. That's not going to be good enough. Most of the people I talk to are Seattle study clubs. Everyone that's part of the Seattle study club is really good. Yeah. They're all good dentists. They're very good at what they do. So that's not good enough. You're surrounded by very good. You know, this phone I have, I go back to the iPhone. 
It's not very good. It's exceptional, man. When I think about all the things I can do on it, but it's not just that. It goes back to what Craig said. It also is part of a culture. That little symbol, it, the little Apple symbol, it actually does mean something to me. It means there's a conscious effort in this company to be innovative, to have a quality product, to stand out from the rest. I hope that my logo on my street for my community five miles around there says the same exact thing. Innovative people trying to do the right thing, up with technology, leveraging the newest, latest, and greatest. I want people to know that like they know this phone in my community. And that's how we need to start attacking our profession, not just say, well, I'm very good, so that's good enough. It's not good enough. Not if you want to be at the end of your career and say, wow, that was great. That was great. You know, Craig, I don't know if anybody knows this. You know, I know this and Peter knows this, but I know your buddies with Tony Robbins. You know, I've listened to everything. Everybody that knows me, they're like, how the hell has Chris Ramsey not gone to Tony's course? So the next one that happens, I was supposed to be the one in Palm Beach, but I was traveling. You know, he's the best guy to listen to about ta- about not just waking up every day and wanting to be ordinary, about wanting to take part of your life and say, you know what? I have an opportunity here because it, Am I right about this, guys? Back me up. It seems like when your professional life is humming and things are good, it just trickles down. You come home. You're on fire. You're like, but when your day is bad at work and you're like, God, you come home, everything sucks. And I know some people are good at separating that, but I want that eight hours with those strangers. I want people to go, wow, this guy is doing it right. And I want to feel that back from my customers and have them go, man, you guys are great. You know how how it is when people come and they go, this was – this was an amazing experience or the 220 Google reviews that are all five star that Rob and I have and people, and you read those reviews and most of them are about our team, man, that is so damn rewarding. I can't get past it. Oh, I lose my marbles over it, you know? So it's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. Did I give one? I want to add one thing to it because when you're, you know, I, I, I understand there's a, you know, a diverse audience that's listening to us and there are a lot of unfulfilled dentists out there. And we have this disease process in America that we're, we're all struck. I mean, everything we're talking about, we're just trying to be happy and fulfilled and achievement and fulfillment are so oftentimes completely unrelated. We have examples of people who have achieved massive amounts of success and true success, like accolades from their peers and loving relationships and money, and they're totally unfulfilled. So I think there's an, a paranoia or, a, you know, an overriding psychology in dentistry that if I just had that, I'd be happy, or I just needed to take my panky course, or I just need to have a bigger practice or another associate. But it, there's also something to be said for just doing it on your terms. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just speak to the dentists out there that are maybe working two and a half days a week, and they're, they're doing it really, really good. Um, maybe their front desk team doesn't have it hammered down like we would want ours to be. But as long as they're providing a good service to the patient, they're ethical, they're kind, they're conscientious, they're coming at it with the right position in their heart. And that's giving them fulfillment, nothing more to do. I mean, because there's guys right. that, are, that are slaying it and lecturing and have five and six doctors working for them. And at the end of the day, they're not fulfilled. Right. So the goal yeah. is, is fulfillment and happiness. And, and they're not always related. So we have, we have our peers out there that, are, that are, just have this scarlet. They're bearing a scarlet letter. They don't feel good enough. Right. They really don't feel like they're doing it right. They're looking for you know, some form of some sort of stamp of approval. And I just want to speak to those people that 
as long as you're happy and you're taking good care of the patients and you sleep well and you're proud of what you're doing and you're employing people that appreciate their jobs and you're being a contributing member of the community, kudos to you, man. It's, right. You're doing it right. Or, or that, that you know, one of just. I hear what you're saying too, but sometimes you may construe that as saying like, all right, I'm good. So I'm just going to kind of like cruise. And I think, I think our legacy will be built on the desire for our self-improvement. So you constantly have to be going back to the well, even though you're good, you know, you have to be learning the things that are, that are for the benefit of the patient, like the body language. And I truly think what Chris has taught us today, you know, some people could say, oh, you're just trying to manipulate what people are feeling. No, you're actually coming at it from a different standpoint. You're being so – you're empathizing so well with the patient about where they are that you're looking right. for more than just what's said. So you're in right. – it's, it's, it's not manipulative at all. If anything, it's the yeah. complete opposite. And so – uh, And, and I'm not saying, saying – Greg. I'm not saying about that. But like happiness is not this thing. So it's not like you add an extra oh, bedroom right, a destination. It's not a destination. and you get happy. Happiness is an action. And the way we get happy is actually – it's an activity. And most people get happy by solving problems. So like what you were talking about, the body language, massive problem for those, for those dentists that are struggling. There's fantastic dentists out there that just don't understand this stuff. It was, um, it was massively eye-opening for me. But if they could just master even 10% of what you're talking about, if they could see you at a course, they could actually get a chance to do the dentistry that they love to do. And yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing I said at the beginning. My number one goal, you know, my program is about five hours. When I do this, it's, it's, mainly built around one thing. I just want people to come who want to say, you know what? I want to stop doing the things that make me unhappy. I want to do more of the dentistry I love. And I just want to be great at what I do. You know, and again, they're great at what they do because they take all these technical courses, but dentistry is funny. I compare dentistry to every other business. You look at an Apple, you look at a Disney, you look at anything. They are never satisfied which is saying, okay, you know what? We're good enough. Let's just hang tight and coast for a while. Never. They're constantly saying, even though right now what we're, you know, we're delivering, but behind in the behind the scenes and behind the scenes could be just in your own brain. What do I need to do next to continue to make exceptional? I love this saying I started with every, at every program. I say this, your practice is not stagnant. That's a myth. You are either growing or you are dying. So this is a Chris Ramsey thing that I say at every lecture. You are either bread or you are wine. Every year you age, you either become more valuable like wine or more stale like bread, but you are going to be one or the other. So every year you age, your practice is either growing or dying. Don't kid yourself. If you say you're stagnant, well, even I could tell you, well, the economy is not even stagnant. So if you're doing the same numbers you did last year, you're making less. You know, so the reality is you've got to decide, am I going to be bread? Am I going to be wine? What's it going to be? So even in the back of my mind, we're doing things well now. What do I need to do? We need to continuously just, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the great thing about this podcast is we're not here selling you anything. I'm not saying go buy this adhesive or go buy this ceramic or anything. I'm just saying the smallest changes is the little coin in the pond that creates the ripple effect. I tell people all the time, look at the way you answer the phone. Mm -hmm. Stand back one day, go in your own lobby in your own waiting room, in the busyness of it all, sit down with the patient, talk to them. But while you're talking to them, take a look around. What do you see? Are the light bulbs all the same color? Is there any dust anywhere? Are your magazines current? That doesn't cost anything to say, you know what? These little things, because people notice. They matter. I went to my physician. I think I told the story in New York when we were all together in, in NYU. I went to my physician. He, he had to take some blood. It was at the end of the day. I waited for him. And then I went back to see him and we were chatting in his office and I go, dude, I'm so glad you had, I didn't mind waiting. You had this awesome magazine out there. I was reading. It was the best new cars of 2012. 
what the hell was that magazine doing out there? The best new cars of 2000. He goes, Oh, I haven't been out there in like, you know, a couple of years. I don't even go to my lobby. The attention to detail isn't important for them, you know, cause everyone's doing a $10 copay and they're miserable right. about it. Yep. Yep. We are so lucky to be dentists. Oh, so lucky to do what we do, wake up every day to do what we do. I don't want people to lose perspective of that. And you got to attack your profession and say, I, I really want to go and I want to be incredible. And that incredible could be exactly what Craig was saying. I'm incredible because I, I devote – you could be a part-timer and you say, I do the, I devote two days a week to this profession, but I do it at a level that is absolutely the best of my ability technically. And when I'm with my patients, I've built a reputation that people know, wow, this is an honest, ethical person who does a wonderful job. You're successful, Bob. By definition, that's awesome. You know, I love it. Yeah. You know, but um, before I overtalk you guys, I'll, I'll hit the last thing real quickly because we talked about – Mindset, addressing choice, storytelling, training the eye, expectation. There's a lot inside of expectation. But the last part of it was um, the R of master, which was recognizing persuasion. I'm going to tell you, if you want to get an incredible book, it's called Influence. It's The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Cialdini it's yeah. an amazing book, amazing book. He talks about six rules, reciprocation, commitment, and consistency. That's one. Social proofing, liking, authority, and scarcity. I won't hit on all those now, but I do like covering those because I use a lot of these techniques in the art of persuasion during our everyday conversations um, with patients. The first thing I want to make sure you guys understand, I think social proving is a great way to start because all of us are addicted to social media and Facebook and all these things that are going on. We're constantly evaluating our own lives and sometimes our professional lives on how many likes and how many things, which I think is a very false way of determining how many friends you have or how the world views you. But Social proving is understand this. People do what other people do when everyone's doing it, so it feels like the right thing to do. If a group over here is doing something, you join the group, you say, well, everyone else is doing it, you feel it's the right thing to do. So social proofing psychologically is an important thing. This is why the dentist listening to this right now, even though we won't get in-depth into it, the concept of social media and the influence that has on the perception of your community is so important you know, so important for you to have Google reviews. We have 220 Google reviews. Do you know how many people now come because they saw the Google reviews? They come because they go, well, I saw this practice. They have 18. You have 220. Five-star reviews. Everyone else is coming here. I might as well go there too. People want to go where everyone else is going. So, so this is why McDonald's puts on their sign, billions and billions served. Don't you want to be billions and billions of people getting heart disease? You know, um, you, know you look at um, – testimonials for anything. I bought a new clicker for my presentation. I went to Amazon. I put in presentation clickers, four stars and above. It had to be on Prime. Does anyone not have Amazon Prime, by the way? It's the best thing ever, right? Yeah. And then this one clicker comes up, 3,400 reviews. I bought it. Right. Of course I bought it. I'm not buying the one that's got you know 20 reviews, 3,400 four stars. <laughs> you know the one mean? that's so, got 30 reviews, that's sketch. 2,000, yeah. I'm in. Yeah, 3,400 reviews. So social proofing is one of those elements I think it's important to understand. Um, secondly, I think when it comes down to – I want to just tell you real quickly about just something called the, re the reciprocation rule. People want to do for other people who have already done for them. We have this amazing opportunity to do great things for people, and they reciprocate back in ways by referring patients, by bringing their family. We do – can I tell you guys how many times – this happens so time. I'm prepping number 19. I get it all prepped and I look at the distal of 20 and I'm like, oh boy. It doesn't show up on the x-ray, but you can tell mm -hmm. that's it's got that chalky white, you know, like that's a cavity on its way. 
So I say, you know, Mrs. Jones, I take a picture. I go, you got a cavity right here. Give me a minute. Whether it's your little round burr, etch bond flow, whatever you do, I fix it really quickly. And you know how many times I do that for patients and I never charge them? Not, and I just do that. And I, she goes, oh, you're going to bill my insurance? I go, no, no, no. I just want to do that for you. You're already numb. It takes me an extra five minutes. It's the right thing to do. I saw it. I, I, when she goes up and she pays full fee for that crown, <clears throat> in her brain, she's thinking, what a nice guy. You just saved me $250 or whatever. You know, these things that we do for patients, they're so easy for us to do sometimes. They go so far. They go so far. And when I tell people about these things, I tell them not just my personal stories, but I back them up. Everything I'm talking about, I have so much social science studies done. Great story. They use a uh, restaurant in New Jersey. They wanted to see the average tipping over months, so they got an average. They went to this restaurant and they ran some basic studies. They said, we're going to put down the bill, and what we'd like you to do is when we put down the bill, we tell the waiters, put down a mint, just an extra thing to say thank you for coming. So they put down one mint with the bill, and over a few weeks period, they analyzed all the tips. The tips went up 3%. Not a big deal, but they went up 3%. Another couple weeks, they said, okay, all the waiters and waitresses, put down the bill, but now put down two mints. Put down two mints. Say thank you for coming, guys. Great to see you. But you add two mints to the bill. Tips went up 14%. Then they said, to prove our point, let's do this. Put down the check. Put down one mint. Walk away and then turn around real quick and go, you know what? You guys were great. Here's an extra mint. So what did they get? They still got two mints, but they got it differently. Tips went up 23%. 23% on that study. What is it? What was the moral of that story? When it comes to reciprocation, there are some basic fundamental rules. You want to be the first to do it, make it personalized, and mostly make it unexpected. That reciprocation rule is huge. Do things for your patients where they didn't expect you to do that, and they're like, wow, that was awesome. These are not the people when they're husband makes the change at his job that are going to be too quick to lose your leave your practice because their insurance changed or something like that. They're going to be like, no way. I'm not leaving these guys. You know how nice they are to me? It's unbelievable the things they do for me and my family. Reciprocation rule plays way. It's huge, heavy psychologically. I talked to my team about that. The, you know, and I actually thought it was called The Law of Reciprocity with Cialdini because I've, I've read that book too. And that almost – I've actually implemented that, Chris, in, in actually my marketing principles because – I think that if I can deploy so much value through videos and education and whatever, that people are going to feel so compelled because they got such value from what I created, they, they yes. will be compelled to reciprocate by saying, I'm going to give you my business. And so it, yeah. it's almost yes. from patient treatment, like you're talking about, all the way down to how we market and such. And so, uh, yeah, everything you're saying, man, is just, it's just, yeah. it's worth it's like gold. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, you, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Craig. Sorry. No, it's just like why spend your marketing dollars on people you don't know when you can allocate your marketing budget towards the existing people in your practice? You know, like, so like, you know, look at, look at uh, Zappos, for example, like Zappos had no marketing budget. But they were spending money on their existing customer. Why would you spend? And you know, you know, the statistic probably better than I do. Um, but you know, what percentage of treatment does a brand new unreferred cold lead patient accept that you recommend, uh, you know, what percentage of the treatment you recommend right. versus someone that's referred yeah. from some, yeah, very low. Right. So just what about the, the conversation about taking that two to 7% of your marketing budget and actually just investing on your patients, just putting right. it all towards your patients. Buying some mints. 
one of the two. <laughs> yeah. But, right. but always turning back around and, and right. doing the second mint. You gotta do the delayed mint. The delayed mint. If it has sugar, it's carriagenic. It could actually pay a dividend. You never know. <laughs> Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's funny that you mentioned Zappos. You know, Zappos was one of the first companies who started this trend. A lot of people don't know this. You know, they were one of the first companies that said, "Buy these shoes. If you don't like them, we'll pay for the shipping back." Yep. Did you know that they were one of the first companies? Now everyone does that, but Zappos. People were like, "What?" Whoa, so yeah, now- that was wild. That was a wild so- concept. Huge concept. So people were like, oh my God, I can buy these shoes, try them on. If I don't like them, it doesn't cost me anything to return them. I can ship them right back. Zappos would pay for your shipping back because they knew the statistics. Most people were going to get the shoes. They're going to love them and they're not going to send them back. Or if they don't love them, eh, that's a lot of work. Go to UPS, do this. Exactly. What about a 365-day return policy? You can buy a dress on Zappos, wear it a dozen times over a year, and then return it. They allow you to do that. It's crazy. Oh, crazy. It's crazy because they know human nature. Most people don't. But it's a, your way of doing something. Like I said, personalized, unexpected. Be the first to do it. It's it's unheard of. Awesome. You know, it's it's amazing. Cialdini had another thing in his book. Um, you know, it was about the whole uh, you know the whole liking process. You know, and you know the reason that button is on there that they, they call it a like button is because we know how much influence that has on people. The ability to say I like this. I like it. You know, I. I often will train people when I'm talking to them. I said, using small verbiage. When you do a smile design, by the way, guys, the best thing in the world is to, when you do the temps on somebody, you do, you do a whole veneer temp, let's say on somebody. When they look in the mirror, these are great auditory cues. Someone will say, that looks really good. That's a scary thing to me. When someone truly loves something, they include themselves in it. So they use words like we, I, us. Those are cute cues that i look for so there's a difference between let's say let's say uh peter you do my i say hey peter prep my teeth for veneers you temporize me and i look in the mirror i go yeah that looks pretty good man that's not a good sign there's a difference when i go wow i really like that i really like that or we think this is phenomenal as soon as you include the liking the liking is important to understand to go something go yeah or you say hey what do you think of my new car you go yeah, that, that's that's sweet, man. That car is really, really nice. That's the big difference between I. I go, wow, I love that. I love that car. Or we just, we saw your car and we thought it was phenomenal. Liking is an important thing. It's called in group favoritism. There's a term for that where you use the we and the us, and you start looking for things like that. So these are nice cues to say when someone goes, "Hey, it looks good." I say, "Well, I'm glad you like it, but is there anything right off the bat you would change?" That's a fun question to ask to get them now. You know, involved because right off the bat, because when you make those little small changes, open embrasures, contour some temps maybe, and they go, I really like the way that looks now. I like the way that looks now. Boom. I got it. So those are just fun things I like to train dentists on when they're looking for things because they'll go, oh, yeah, it looks good. And dentists go, good. And they cut them loose. And then the patients drive them crazy. You know, so, you know, the best thing you can do to have your team do, and and this will be the last thing I mentioned on this topic, is every person that comes through your door wants to feel a connection. That's the bottom line. That's how we are built as humans. They need to feel that similarity to find that connection. So we as dentists have these amazing opportunities with our team to do anything we can to create a connection. And I think this is a great way for us to end on this subject matter is because I think dentists miss that opportunity. And that opportunity can be anything. I end my lectures by doing this a lot of times. I'll say, hey, miss, where are you from? And she'll go, Pittsburgh. 
I go, oh my God, Pittsburgh. I go, I love, I go, I was just out on that river where the new stadium was built and they built that new casino. And she's like, yeah. I go, see what I'm doing? I took one thing and made it about you. One of the best books you can ever read, and I hope your listeners take me up on this early, early on, the, one of the best, best books is the book that's written in 1937, How to Win Friends and Influence People from uh, Dale Carnegie. A phenomenal book. And what's the one thing he says in the book? If you want people to walk away from a conversation and go, wow, that person is incredible, talk about, talk them. about them. Just make it about them. Don't say anything about yourself. Make it about them. We have these opportunities. When you get that new patient slip and you look, okay, where are they from? Where were they born? And if you don't get anything, I, I make conversation with them when I first meet them and try to find those little things. And as soon as they say, I have two kids, I have two dogs, I was raised in Jupiter, I'm from New York, anything where I can go, boom, and I slide right in there and start talking about them, their children, their dogs, their experiences like this. And that's all I do is talk about them. Don't bring – it's hard. It's hard for a dentist not to then – Turn the conversation around and make it about them. Keep it all about them. And I promise you, when that person leaves that practice, they're going to go, wow, they are awesome. They're awesome. Why? Because you spent the whole time talking about them. And people love themselves. You know, so that's my that's my last part on that subject. So, yeah. Check out Influence, uh, uh, Art of Persuasion. It's 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 amazing. So Chris, do you come – do you – you've been generous enough with your time. I don't want to – and, and yeah. we – I'm going to break this up into two. I know Craig okay. always say that, and I never break it up into two parts, but, like, this is this is worthy of, of two parts. That being said, do you do this on site? Like, how can someone – let's say what you're speaking is someone wants to get more of this. Like, how can they get more Chris Ramsey? Okay, so a couple things happened. So to be to be 100% honest, what's been great about this is I've done this for a jewelry store chain. <laughs> I've done this for other sales teams. So I've done this even outside of dentistry. If you hire me, you got to know this. If you're a dental office, you want me or a group of dentists or a study club or whatever, you got to know if you're going to bring me, you've got to bring your – it's got to be something where you plan to bring the team. You got to bring the team. Having a group full of dentists is one thing, but the dentist will never be able to go home and sell this to their office. It's yeah. not going to happen. So if you're a study club, you got to do something around the team. I do it – mostly 95% of my programs are team events. So you want to have the team there. It's very important. Lastly, you could be doing this even if you're not a dentist and you will say, I'm a dentist, but I want to bring other people from other industries because the one thing I want people to know is when I come there, you will not see any clinical dentistry. I will not come and talk to you about procedures, materials. That is not me. This is all about making it about you guys, about what we can do to make you more successful in your office, regardless of what your profession is. I don't care whether it's endo, perio. I don't care if you're an orthopedic surgeon or you own a restaurant, for crying out loud, because I, I know that industry too. So for me, I want people to understand there's nothing clinical. I'm not talking dentistry. I just make it relative to the dental office because that's what we do for a living. So they can get a hold of me. If you go to ChristopherRamsey.com, uh, ChristopherRamsey.com, that's my personal website. There's a place where you can see the topics of the lecture. There's a little video there um, that was taken at a sales club symposium. If you want to see the style in which I speak, there's a nice little video there for about six minutes. I do an array of topics just to kind of cover it if you want to see the style. And then right there you can – and if you just want to email me and get more information, I'm happy to do that too. I'm good about returning emails. Man, that's awesome. I want you to come to my office. and I've known you for Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, was, hey, you can't come to your office. You're too close. <laughs> no, no. That, that's a great thing. Like Craig alone has a group that's just is, just in employees are huge. You know, I'd come down there. I, I I would do it just for fun for him. It's it's good. Wait, stuff. can you do bio office just for fun? <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to I'm gonna hold you to that, man. I would come I'd come down, brother. It would be so much fun. We'd have a good time. Yeah, 
Yeah, this just totally blew my mind, man. I had no idea about the level that, I mean, when, when, uh, Peter got back from the DSD program, he's like, let me tell you something, man. Ramsey just blew me away. I mean, you said that, Peter, to me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. That was was my big takeaway. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, you just, it's just when you think you've got like, I got this. Like you hear someone like Ramsey talking, you're like, damn, I could get a lot better, man. Yeah, that's exactly what he said about you. And, <laughs> I sat there at the DST and said the, said the same thing. I'm like, wow, my my work looks terrible. Uh-huh. I, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, so. No, I love it, guys. I hope I didn't overtalk you. I know we talked for a long time, um, but I'm extremely passionate about this. And I think the passion just becomes from the same thing you guys want. You're doing this podcast because we want people in our profession to just be exceptional. Pain. You know, I feel bad for when I meet dentists and they go, I'm burned out. I hate it. I'm like, Really? Because you're, it's sad because this is a great profession. No matter what angle you're coming at, I think we're very, very lucky to do what we do. The greatest profession, 100%. I totally agree. Um, man, Craig, anything else in closing, bud? Yeah, I got one question because you mentioned you worked for Disney three times. I got to know what you did for Disney. I'm a Disney uh, okay. He was Pluto. So, yeah. So, I uh, believe it or not, I danced six nights a week in the electric light parade at night. <laughs> and I was character trained in the day. So, what's interesting about Disney – if you work in the entertainment department, you get labeled, and what they mean by that is they'll often say to you, they would come to you and they'd say, hey, Craig, like all kidding aside, Craig, how tall are you? 6'5". Six, 6'5", five. Six, five. okay, wow, he's big. All right, so they would say, they would come to you and they'd say, hey, Craig, what is your height? And what they mean by that is you never answer 6'5". So you would say, I'm Tigger height, I'm Goofy height, I'm Mickey uh, height, any height. No, I'm Goofy height, basically. No, actually, you know what's funny about you? You would not fit in the Goofy costume. So to be Goofy height, you have to be six foot to six foot two. And then you're deemed – I'm six foot two, so you're deemed goofy height. So I, by being goofy height, that means you also could trickle down to fit into these other costumes. So I think, man, six five. I think that bear, be- that goofy bear with a big gut from the bear jamboree. That, that's blue. Yeah, blue. blue. Yeah. yeah. But let's be honest, Peter. He could do Prince Charming. <laughs> you know what? I like that. I like Prince that. Charming. Prince yeah. Charming. Yeah. Or Peter Pan, you know, green tights. I'm down. <laughs> I would love to see you in green tights, bro. I'll pay money for that. Uh, I really could do a trade. He could come to your office, and Craig, you could put on the tights. Oh, that'd be sweet. That'd be sweet. <laughs> if it's for my team, they know I'm a jokester. I'd gladly do it. That's awesome. Do well, it. listen, I appreciate you guys having me, man. I hope I didn't talk too no, fast buddy. or too much, but that was awesome. Said, I love this topic, man. I really that was do. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, awesome. Chris, and uh, yeah, we'll connect soon, buddy. And it's always good to All see right. your face and talk to you, pal. Thank you very, very much. I, I much success to both of you guys. Thank you so much, All right, brother. Thanks. All right, have a good one, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Bulletproof Dental Practice with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Online at BulletproofDentalPractice.com. We'll catch you next time.